Because the chosen people did not learn, did not understand, did not internalize the symbolism of the temple and the symbolism of the site of the temple, therefore, the destruction that occurred to Shiloh would occur to the most sacred space in Judaism as well. So it came to pass. The unthinkable occurred. The temple was destroyed. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 145, Why a Temple? I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. It is a famous story in the Talmud describing the destruction of the first temple in the age of Jeremiah. As the flames suffused the sacred structure, the young Kohanim, priests who had intended to spend their lives ministering in the sanctuary, stood atop the temple roof and held in their hands the keys of the Heichal, the inner sanctum of the temple. Holding these keys in their hands, they exclaimed before the Almighty, Ribono Shalolam, Master of the Universe, Ho'il v'lo zachinu liot gizbarin ne'manim, yiu maftechot misurot l'cha. Because we did not merit to be true treasurers of these keys of this site, let the keys be given over to you. V'zarkum klape mala. And they threw the keys to the heavens. V'yatzta ke'ein pisat yad v'kibaltan mehem. Suddenly a heavenly hand emerged and received the keys. And the priest jumped off the roof into the flaming inferno below. Why did the Jews of Jeremiah's age lose the right to minister in the temple, which had stood for hundreds of years? The answer is to be found in the symbolism of Judaism's most sacred site, the locus of Jewish longing, the place on which the temple stood, and whose significance we must discover again in our own time. Throughout the reign of several kings, Jeremiah warns Jerusalem that the temple will be destroyed, and yet no one believes him. Other individuals come forward who falsely claim to know prophetically that Jerusalem will stand secure, and by and large, Jeremiah's warnings fall on deaf ears. But when we think about all that we have learned thus far, we can begin to understand Jerusalem's confidence, however terribly mistaken it was. For consider, the last moment that the city was besieged was in the age of Hezekiah. There, too, Jerusalem was threatened by a superpower, Assyria. But then, at the last moment, miraculous salvation descended from above. Moreover, this angelic intervention occurred precisely after Hezekiah entered the sanctuary and beseeched the Almighty inside the sacred sphere. From these events, the Israelites in Jerusalem drew the following fallible conclusion. The temple is invincible. It protects Jerusalem always. Thus, the Bible reports that the Jews would say in confident reassurance to each other, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem, the temple of God, the temple of God, meaning that the temple served as a spiritual force field against all assaults. Thus the criticisms by Jeremiah of Israel from chapters 3 through 7 are bracketed by references to the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, by the prophet's implicit and explicit assertions that the protective nature of the temple is contingent on Israel understanding the moral and religious lessons that the temple and the temple mount embody. Let us start with chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. The Jerusalemites believed that the temple would save them. 
But Jeremiah, standing at the gates of the temple, informs all those entering that in order to ensure the protection of the temple, the Jews must embody the values of the temple in their own lives. What are these values? In our discussions of David and Solomon, we previously highlighted two distinct lessons that the temple exists to teach. One is the brotherhood of God's covenant people. We saw how the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is shared territorially between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, a reminder of Judah offering himself for Benjamin in the Joseph story. Jerusalem is thus a unique symbiosis of geography and theology, a spatial recreation of Judah's penitential sacrifice for his family, which is replayed out atop a mountain for all eternity. The message is that where brother sacrifices for brother as Judah sacrificed for Benjamin, there the divine will dwell. Another symbolism of the temple relates to the mysterious connection between God and Israel throughout history. Recall Solomon's exclamation that even he, wisest of all kings, could not comprehend how God enshrined his presence in the Holy of Holies. Solomon said, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Even Solomon could not explain how an infinite God rested his presence atop a finite ark. And as we argued, the mystery of the Temple Mount embodies the miracle that is the Jewish people. A universal God who created the universe chooses to make his presence known first and foremost in a relatively small site, in a relatively small mountain in the Middle East. And this embodies the surprising fact that the God of all humanity chooses to be known to the world through one particular family that the creator of the earth seeks to be known on earth as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus, the temple is meant to remind the Jews of these themes and to inspire them to embrace these themes in their own lives. But Jeremiah continues, the opposite has occurred. Israelites continue to enter the temple, but in repudiation of all that it represents, they have opted for banditry over brotherhood, oppression over covenantal love, and they have abandoned God himself. Only if they return to all that the temple teaches can they be sure of its protection. Verse 5, For if ye thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, Ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will ye steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense unto Baal, and walk after other gods whom ye know not, and come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? So Jeremiah proclaims. The denizens of Jerusalem, however, ignore Jeremiah. They think to themselves, the temple is the dwelling place of the divine. How can it be destroyed? In contrast, Jeremiah argues, that the temple and the temple mount exist to teach God's people how to live. And only if God's people truly embodies the lessons that they are intended to learn, then will all of Jerusalem become like the temple itself. If holiness is embraced, if love is reflected, then, Jeremiah seems to say, the Ark of the Covenant will no longer be the only locus of divine indwelling, and the entire sacred city will become the throne of God. Chapter 3, verse 16. And it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord. They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. 
and all the nations shall be gathered unto it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Jeremiah's warnings and Jeremiah's attempts at inspiration are ignored by blithe Jerusalemites. To us, today, who know of the temple being destroyed not once but twice, such a catastrophe seems all too possible. But Jerusalem's inhabitants in the age of Jeremiah had never known anything but the temple. Jeremiah therefore reminds them of the tabernacle that had stood in Shiloh for centuries. Recall this tale from the beginning of the book of Samuel. The priests there had betrayed their calling, and the ark of God, symbol of the love binding Israel to the Almighty and to each other, was seen by the people of Israel as an invincible weapon, but it was not. Thus Jeremiah tells his contemporaries in chapter 7, verse 12, But go ye now unto my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because ye have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spoke unto you, rising up early and speaking, but ye heard not, and I called you, but ye answered not. Therefore will I do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. Because the chosen people did not learn, did not understand, did not internalize the symbolism of the temple and the symbolism of the site of the temple, therefore, the destruction that occurred to Shiloh would occur to the most sacred space in Judaism as well. So it came to pass. The unthinkable occurred. The temple was destroyed. And this is the meaning of the Talmudic tale. The keys to the temple represent the key to Jewish life itself. And it is these that the Jews of Jeremiah's age had abandoned. For Israelites to deserve the keys to the Temple Mount, it was obligated to reflect the lessons of that sacred site in their own lives. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, a terrible irony is revealed. In the ancient age of Jeremiah, the Jews lost the keys to the Temple Mount because they had failed to embody the Temple's teachings, chosenness, and brotherhood. But in our own time, in 1967, for a brief period, the teachings of the Temple Mount were gloriously made manifest. The events of the Six-Day War revealed the mysterious connection between the God of Israel and the Jewish people, a central teaching of the Temple, and something that for a moment was recognized by so many. Moreover, as captured sublimely in David Rubinger's famous photograph of the three soldiers at the Western Wall, that moment was also one of fellowship, of a feeling of brotherhood among Jews, both in Israel and around the world. And it was precisely at this moment, when the themes of the Temple Mount were made manifest in Israel, and when the keys of the Temple Mount were given back to Israel, that those keys were given away, consigning the Temple Mount to the waqf, that to this day oversees the site, with all outright forms of Jewish worship being banned. Since that moment, the waqf has destroyed much archaeological evidence of the temple that once was there, and now the denial of the Jewish connection to that most sacred site is commonplace. I will not reiterate today the entire sad story of the Temple Mount, and we've included in the email one of my essays expressing my own views on the subject. But this we can say today. A constant theme of this podcast is the manifest miracles that have come about through the Zionist movement, and through the birth, rise, and flourishing of modern Israel. And we have seen in our own studies how verses of Isaiah depicting the restoration of Jerusalem have come true in our time. But as we study now the destruction of the temple and the tale of Jeremiah, it must be said that in the past 54 years, since the miraculous moment when Jews returned to ancient Jerusalem, the sacred city has been rebuilt, but the destruction of the remnants of the temple has gotten worse. In the next two weeks, we will finish Jeremiah, and then we will turn to Ezekiel, who is not only prophet but priest, 
and the future of the Temple Mount will be very much on his mind. His words will, I hope, also inspire us and teach us to bear Judaism's most sacred sight stamped upon our souls. But at the same time, as we read of Jeremiah telling the Jerusalem destined for destruction all that will occur, we must still give gratitude for what the Jewish world has today. The book, O Jerusalem, describes a Mordechai wine garden of Jerusalem's old city in 1948, hearing a knock at his door at the moment when the British mandate over the Holy Land was coming to a close. Quote, He got up, put on his black vest and jacket, adjusted his gold-rimmed spectacles and his black hat, and stepped into the courtyard. There before Weingarten stood a middle-aged British major. From his right hand dangled the key to Zion Gate. From the year 70 AD till today, he said, a key to the gates of Jerusalem has never been in Jewish hands. This is the first time in 18 centuries that your people have been so privileged. End quote. Weingarten, we are further told in the book, took the key with a trembling hand and pronounced the blessing, giving gratitude to God for living to see this moment, and adding, I accept this key in the name of my people. That key to Zion Gate was lost in 1948 and returned in 67. To walk in Jerusalem today is to hear its prophets beseeching the Jewish people to mourn missed opportunities, to celebrate its miracles, and to seek to become all that its most sacred site calls us to be. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.